0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to part two of our special podcast episode devoted to World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, eleventh of July, twenty nineteen. In part one of the podcast, we chatted with W Bad Volunteer and W Bad Rocks of Kindness Project Manager Janelle. We also spoke with physician and director of the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, Dr. Christy Huff. And just before we get going, if you'd like to get involved and follow along with awareness events occurring all day today, then head over to World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day's Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash worldbenzoday, or you can find them on Twitter at Day. Okay, and so our next interview is with Stephen Wright, MD. Dr. Wright is a residency-trained family physician with a 36-year clinical career. Active in addiction medicine and medical pain management, he focuses on issues related to controlled substances, addiction and pain management through consulting, speaking, advocacy, policy development and education. His clinical interests include the neurophysiology and treatment of pain and addiction, non opioid analgesia, opioids, benzodiazepines, cannabis in medical and non medical use, adverse consequences, best practices, and systems of care. Dr. Wright is the medical consultant for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. Dr. Wright, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for the Madden America podcast. And, um, to begin with, I'd, I'd kind of like to ask a little bit about you and you know how you got into medicine, and in particular, what led you towards addiction medicine as a specialty.
1: Sure. So I, I started out in family medicine uh, in the United States. It's uh, a process that involves a residency program, which I completed in 1982, way back in the day, <laughs> and uh, started. I uh, started doing family medicine. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And a group came down, wanted to put in an addiction treatment center. And I told them I had no training, no experience, didn't inhale, got the job, loved it. <laughs> you know, I, I really like the disease of addiction in terms of working with folks. Uh, uh, individuals are so grateful. Uh, it makes an enormous difference. Uh, the stigma, which continues even today, uh, it was a particular challenge back at that time, and 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 so the understanding of of addiction and how that separates away from everything else uh, quite quite important. So that was 31 years ago, 1987, and then started doing addiction uh, medical pain management about 15 years ago. Individuals with the disease of addiction often have pain. I'd send them to pain centers that turned out to be procedure centers, not giving me advice on medication or non-interventional approaches. And so got into all of that. And so, uh, you know, and I thought that that would have utility having the experience in the disease of addiction to know that interface to help identify individuals that are in trouble with uh, opioids, which of course are a grave concern to all of us and so forth. So along the way, of course, there are multiple other substances that are involved with the disease of addiction, uh, tobacco, alcohol, uh, stimulants, uh, including cocaine and uh, and so forth, and of course the opioids. And in, in in and among that are the benzodiazepines. Yeah. And so, uh, I grew up, you know, in family medicine where benzodiazepines were boring. I mean, I you know, it's just like this is old news, nothing new going on here. Just uh, go ahead and write this. But a lot of us really carried. The assumption that, like with primarily peripherally acting agents, if they work for the short term, they should work for the long term. And we didn't really attend to what I now know as a really important feature, that neuroactive agents may not necessarily have durability of benefit uh, and absence of uh, adverse reactions over a long period of time. So in that process, uh, you know, probably about three or four years ago, uh, Marjorie Merritt Carmen contacted me, uh, you know, about the benzodiazepines and uh, was looking for information about these controlled substances and what this was all about as she was experiencing having quite a bit of difficulty uh, uh, at that particular time and wanted to do something about that. So remember, I grew up in the environment where benzodiazepines are boring and we made assumptions about how this works and and all of that. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll I'll take a look at that. And then over a period of about a year, I became very interested because I I, I ran into conceptual uh, information that indicated that what I thought I had understood thoroughly in the past was not the case. And so with her. We built out a conference in Bend, Oregon, September of 2017, the International Benzodiazepine Symposium, where we invited, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 uh, different speakers, uh, two, di- two and a half days of uh, information. And in that particular process, myself, as well as many others, were particularly impressed, not so much with the geeked out stuff that I was interested in uh, initially, but with the presentation of uh, benzodiazepine survivors, a new term to me at that particular time, uh, individuals that had struggled with benzodiazepines. And and what that was like blew me away, blew a lot of people away in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that uh, what we had been doing all these years was insufficient and inappropriate for a significant population, you know, and not necessarily everybody, but a significant population, and that needed to be addressed. At that particular meeting was Bernie uh, Silvernail and his wife. Uh, she is a, a survivor, uh, now three and a half years off of Ben's die. Been, still struggling he wanted to make a difference as well. So we've built out this organization, the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. Not an organization to fully attack physicians or psychiatry, because uh, we certainly see value in, in a lot of that and even see value in a limited scope of use of benzodiazepines, which we can walk through as well, uh, but recognizing that they are used Far too often, far too long, and far too inappropriately over time. And what do we do about that? And and we're uh, in the process of working through a strategy to help make changes in that regard, Uh, at least in the United States, uh, although we see play in other countries as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to hear that this organization has come about and particularly to hear that, you know, it was survivor stories that helped in the genesis of of that organization. And I just wondered if you felt that there's been a shift in accepting there might be addiction or dependence problems with prescribed drugs, because I know that in the UK, certainly, you know, it's taken quite a long time. You mentioned addiction and people immediately think of illicit drugs and alcohol and, you know, recreational things. And once you start to talk about benzodiazepines or maybe antidepressants or or others, people aren't as familiar with the fact that there can be dependence problems with drugs taken as prescribed. So I just wonder if you felt there'd been a shift in thinking on that in recent years.
1: I think there has, and this is primarily brought about by the presence of the challenges that are now well-recognized with opioids. And of course, opioids are very often appropriately prescribed in uh, pain circumstances where individuals can't function without them. Uh, certainly not the only thing, certainly not necessarily the first thing, but uh, can be quite important. But uh, overprescription of those has led to a disastrous consequence uh, in the United States where we've had hundreds of thousands of individuals uh, uh, dying from opioid associated death over the last uh, uh, 15, 20 years. Last year alone, about 47,000 for opioids. Now, these are not all prescription opioids, about half of those. But along with that has really come along some data with regards to the other substances and their involvement with opioid-associated death. And The number one other agent that's involved in opioid-associated death is benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. There was a 2013 study which looked at this and found that about 31% of opioid-associated deaths involved a benzodiazepine. Mm-hmm. Just last year, Mattson et al. at uh, the CDC, and you actually have to go into the text of the article and not in the abstract, which surprised me as it was such an important number, But 51.6% of individuals with opioid-associated death uh, also included benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines alone, probably not the cause of many associated deaths. But in the context of the death rate that's connected to opioids, it's really opened our eyes up to that particular issue. And that has opened... Uh, the option up to really discuss benzodiazepines in a larger sense too not just in connection with the opioids but as independent problems and in how we manage uh, other medical conditions uh, over time uh, and long time coming I mean it it just is really distressing to look at the history of this and go back to 1979 when the congressional hearings with Uh, Ted Kennedy went nowhere despite volumes of data Uh, in the United States. The main benzodiazepine study group had this initial burst of uh, activity 2005, 2006, 2007, then disappeared. This can't happen this time around. I mean, and and I think we have some opportunities because of the way this is connected to the opioid crisis that we can bring this to the attention of individuals in relation to opioids, but also as an independent issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's very helpful. Thank you. And in August 2018, you published a blog on, on the benzodiazepine information coalition's website entitled benzodiazepine related problems. It's almost never addiction. And then in that article, you explain that in your entire career, I think you said you've treated only one patient that you describe as having true benzodiazepine addiction. So I, I just wondered: did, did you write the piece because compliant benzodiazepine patients are being misdiagnosed as being addicted when they're not? And, and if so, why is this happening? And if, if they're not addicted, then what is actually behind that? What's going on?
1: Great question. This is a problem that a lot of us has faced in the uh, the addiction community, as well as primary care and psychiatry communities in terms of what is going on here. We hear these concerns and uh, very typically, uh, very quickly jump to, oh, it must be addiction if they're struggling. Well, there's a variety of different kinds of struggle uh, that can be involved with uh, individuals and uh, in any medications. I mean, they're the usual Side effects. I take a blood pressure medicine. My blood pressure goes too low. That's obviously not uh, not addiction. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about what addiction is, and I know that a lot of patients uh, feel stigmatized in relation to being uh, indicated that they have the disease of addiction. Addiction, when it's really there, should never be a stigmatized condition in the first place. Uh, I want to set that straight. But uh, so uh, it's not in and of itself, you know, an indication of moral failing or poor willpower or anything like that. It is a disease of the brain reward system that involves compulsion, thinking about it all day long, loss of control, continuation in spite of adverse uh, uh, consequences. Uh, Those three elements are the primary indicators of the disease of addiction. So when you look at what's going on with individuals, the benzodiazepine survivors, and uh, what their struggles are, it's a different animal. Now, I did see one patient that I'm certain had the disease of addiction with benzodiazepines. And I knew that because he and his girlfriend would show up and they were talking about the struggle, but trying to stop and so forth. and uh, And of course, I fully recognized uh, way back at that time. This was in the 1990s that, you know, you can't just stop benzos. You have to taper it off. So we set up a tapering strategy and she his girlfriend would put it in a lockbox you know, a, a padlock in the front and the medicine kept disappearing and running out early and we couldn't figure it out why. And eventually he owned up to it. He said he was tapping out the pins on the hinge in the back. To open it up. Well, that's the disease of addiction uh, where you have that kind of a drive. Mm-hmm. Individuals that are benzodiazepine survivors have a different sort of problem. When you look at the DSM-5 criterion, it only takes two of the five criteria to have the disease of addiction uh, in, in the mild form. One of the criteria actually describes uh, attempts to stop or inability to uh, stop uh, despite Multiple uh, attempts. That sounds like the individuals with the benzodiazepine survivor, in that particular group. Uh, So, why would that not meet criteria? Well, it has to do with the reasons behind uh, that particular struggle. And if the attempt to stop uh, is because I, as a medical provider for that particular patient, don't know how to do this and it's really, really hard, that is different than. What we see with the disease of addiction, where uh, individuals have uh, strong ambivalence about stopping because they crave the medicine uh, independently. They want, uh, they, they feel a need to use it for non indicated reasons, not for the anxiety, but for non indicated reasons, which includes euphoria and just this drive uh, to use. To put it in a, a, another context, the disease of addiction, I think the best metaphor is. It's like being underwater and telling yourself you're not coming up for air. I'm not coming up for drugs. Works for a moment, but it is not sustainable. That's the disease of addiction. So benzodiazepine survivors don't have that craving. They just don't have the ability on their own and they don't have medical providers out there sufficiently skilled to assist them in that process. That is entirely different. That's not the disease of addiction. And and so I, I've seen that misunderstanding over and over again. And that plays out really importantly, Not, not for me, not so much in terms of the stigma. Uh, the stigma should be gone for the disease of addiction as well. But it plays out because you end up doing the wrong treatment. If you send an individual that has benzodiazepine challenges that are not addicted to a 12-step meeting or in a recovery center or anything like that, they are mystified. They are sitting in groups where individuals are talking about this craving aspect, you know, and, and they're not talking about that. You know, that's not the struggle that they have. So it's a waste of time, a waste of money, uh, and, and, and it's really wrong headed in that regard. And so I wanted to take an attempt to run interference on that misunderstanding because that is so prominent out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really helpful clarification between a a problem conceived as addiction and a problem that that is a dependence problem that maybe needs a a different approach than, as you say, standard kind of recovery programs or even these short-lived interventions where somebody goes into a private clinic for a few weeks and they're not really tapered off, you know, they're not really dealt with in that way. And in that same article, Dr. Wright, you very nobly, I, I felt, apologized to benzodiazepine survivors and said that and you mentioned it again there medical providers weren't really listening to their issues and and you know so i just wondered what led you to kind of make that apology and and i wondered why you felt it was that medical providers weren't listening when people are saying look i'm i'm struggling with this benzodiazepine i'm struggling to come off it i've, I've got problems many years after stopping i just wondered why you felt they're not listening to that
1: well i don't know how noble it is it just is uh, is the right thing to do and you know it really took me a while to come around. And so my personal experience might be useful as we're looking to how to uh, influence other prescribers that are out there. Uh, because, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be particularly useful to go in and tell your prescriber how stupid they are or how wrong they are uh, about this, that, and the other. That would be the like the same thing for me as a prescriber to say that to a patient, you know, I can't believe you're still smoking when your lungs look like this, you know, kind of that kind of approach isn't going to uh, uh, really work. So, uh, so uh, just uh, to frame this a little bit differently, the, I sat with the question of, and I think it's a great debate question for, uh, for the community of prescribers. I sat with the question of, do you offer to everyone who has been taking a benzodiazepine four weeks or longer, the opportunity to taper? Because I I thought, well, you know, there are going to be some people out there that are doing very well. And, you know, if they're doing well, or they pronounce they themselves are doing well, why not just let them sit with this agent uh, over a long period of time? So it took me a while to kind of sort through the literature and listen to the stories and come to the conclusion that indeed uh, it is appropriate and important to offer to all individuals uh, taking that uh, over a long period of time. And so my apology was, is that uh, while a number of individuals could theoretically be successful at more than four weeks duration, Because of the frequency of loss of efficacy, because of the frequency of evolution of adverse events, because of the frequency of adverse events that are not evident until you start to taper, that everybody ought to get a taper. And so that was the listening part that I hadn't been doing over the years, uh, it may not be necessarily a majority of patients that have that experience, but a significant minority in such a way that I should have, have been listening. And indeed, I think this non-listening piece is really, really important in the sense that I believe that the benzodiazepine survivor community is hidden in pain, plain sight. I didn't see them so well because these are individuals that were, quote, lost to follow up in my practice. I don't know why. Maybe they didn't like to pay the bill or this, that or the other, uh, or they didn't want to comply with me. A lot of us, uh, you know, and it's no surprise to your uh, folks out there, have the M. deity syndrome. Uh, You know, we we think a lot of ourselves in that regard. And so we do have a lot of training in certain respects. It just turns out not so much in benzodiazepines. So I think the apology was necessary, was important, and uh, to highlight uh, that we need to, as prescribers, uh, make a be involved in a change process that addresses the evidence, not just to, even if it's the majority of individuals that could be successful, and I don't think that's the case, by the way, but for a significant minority that have really terrible adverse reactions and terrible with real doll responses. We have to listen, uh, uh, to these, uh, to these individuals, you know, there is a, um, there are words on the gravestone, uh, uh six of them around the world. I told him I was sick <laughs> kind of laugh. But it, for me, and I put, I highlight this in my talks is that it really means we need to listen, uh, because, uh, uh the problem with evidence-based medicine which has value uh is that uh, it kind of gives you a sense for what the generic patient is all about but the person in front of you as a prescriber is not a generic patient they have a variety of medical conditions medications that they're on their neurophysiology and physiology is different their genetics are different their preferences are different their uh, environmental circumstances are different. Their access to care is different. So you have to put all these things together and not just carry an assumption about uh, what we see in the literature is that the majority of individuals withdrew okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's useful. Uh, I, one could debate some of that, by the way. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, even if I read that, and I read that that doesn't mean that uh, you know the ten to thirty percent of individuals that have substantial struggles should not be addressed in that way. You, you can't carry the assumption. Well, we'll taper this quickly in three months, and most people will do okay. Well, no, you have to address it as if you're talking to an individual which we can't identify yet as you know, having potential severe reaction to the withdrawal process
0: you know while you were talking there it reminded me how powerful it is for benzodiazepine survivors to share their stories because they give us the context as you said that's not in the scientific literature you know you read the light the scientific literature and you understand group averages and it it doesn't seem as if it's a big issue but then you read a, a heartrending story of someone's struggle over two years five years ten years whatever it might be and and you know that really makes it it live doesn't it so i think it's important to encourage people that have experience of this to share their stories because from talking to you i can see that those stories have had real impact and and actually changed the way that you conceive of this problem as opposed to reading just the what's in the scientific literature
1: that's true and it really is key now that being said we we can't and don't live in a perfect society so we can give cancer drugs and every once in a while somebody's going to die from the cancer drugs so For very rare events, uh, of course, informed consent needs to occur. You can't cover all possibilities. So, you know, when I go to a meeting like I'm going to today, I will drive down the road. I could die in a car accident. Does that mean I don't do that? Well, no. Uh, I take appropriate precautions. I'm going to wear a seatbelt. I'll probably stay sort of within the speed limit and and make my way along the way uh, safely. So, you you know, when we put a particular cut point, say four weeks on to uh, offering taper, that won't cover the individual, that rare individual 10 or 12 days who has physiologic dependence. Mm -hmm. It will not be altogether perfect, Uh, uh, but in terms of the severity of the withdrawal for that individual who has physiologic dependence at 10 days and I taper at four weeks, that's certainly a lot better than uh, addressing the problem two or three years later when the physiologic dependence is probably much worse and the withdrawal response is likely to be worse as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You've kind of covered some of this already, but recently you you co-authored an article in, in the Pain Week journal entitled Benzodiazepines and Z-Drugs for Pain Patients, the Problem of Protracted Withdrawal Symptoms. And you said in there there's currently no good understanding or mechanistic explanation for the protracted withdrawal syndromes that can be a consequence of the cessation of benzodiazepine use. So is there a better term for these protracted issues then? Because mainstream medicine and and my own personal experience is that mainstream medicine seems to conceive of withdrawal as a very short-lived thing, probably only affects you while the drug is in your system, not afterwards. So, you know, we seem to struggle to describe these kind of syndromes that last a long time after the drugs have been ceased.
1: Yes. And I, I'm kind of inclined and I'm, you know, this is an evolving issue for me in terms of how to how to frame this and, and, and discuss this. But, you know, even though Heather Ashton used protracted withdrawal syndrome, she also described, the durability of this being long-term for some individuals. And I think that we should probably at this point dispense with the word withdrawal and use uh, other terminology. The one that I'm settled on (laughs) this week, I mean, it changes all the time is benzodiazepine injury syndrome. And the reason is, uh, so syndrome is uh, is a word that we kind of use, a collection of symptoms that go together, and we don't have the pathophysiology down. As, and we don't. We don't for uh, benzodiazepines uh, in terms of the withdrawal response. <laughs> I shouldn't use that word. Uh, but the injury that's associated with that, uh, we don't know the uh, pathophysiology well enough to define it. Disease is sort of reserved very typically for those conditions in which we have defined the pathophysiology. Uh, So lupus syndrome, for example, was the word used for a long time before we understood the mechanisms uh, involved with that. So injury, I think, is... uh, Indicates that Uh, you know, illness has been used uh, as well. Illness kind of reflects you're going to get over it too, like a a cold is an illness and a pneumonia is an illness, and it's most likely you're going to get over that. Uh, So, I like the injury syndrome, which neither uh, suggests that it will stay around forever uh, or that it'll resolve rather than withdrawal. Now, withdrawal for a lot of us really is uh, not necessarily going to be really short-lived because we recognize post-acute withdrawal for many other substances as well. But I I, I do think we need to step away from that. Now, I I have to say that I often use, you know, protracted withdrawal uh, syndrome as well. Uh, But I think an adjustment uh, uh, is in order. Now, in terms of the injury per se, I toyed with the idea of saying benzodiazepine receptor injury but we don't even know exactly uh, that that is, is what's going on as well. So I just kind of leave it at uh, injury is sort of the uh, go-to word. And, and, and later on, we'll define it better. Now, the receptors, however, are really quite important. And of course, we have the GABA receptor. And the GABA receptor functions include sedation, anxiety. Uh, Muscle relaxation, the amnesia that can go along with it, some respiratory issues, uh, seizure-related issues, temperature regulation, and then, of course, dependence and reward. When you look at the withdrawal symptoms uh, that individuals have, they are often a reflection of this, but there is also so much more, Uh, and I think this is critically important, and The other symptoms that we can see in withdrawal, uh, I categorize the symptoms in three different large categories. First, the psychological symptoms. When I withdraw, my anxiety goes up, agitation, there's depersonalization, derealization, all those things uh, psychologically that your folks are quite aware of as well. Then, I, then there's the neurophysiologic symptoms. Uh, this often uh, is pain, electric shock-like sensation, the perceptual disturbances like touch, smell, taste, visual, auditory, all amplified, uh, very important muscle twitches and that sort of thing. Somatic symptoms maybe have a neurophysiologic base, but may not. We, over time, we may... Uh, have just the two categories, psychological and neurophysiologic. But the somatic symptoms, like the GI symptoms so many folks have, Mm. uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, gas, heartburn, anorexia, cardiovascular, uh, which is probably very important. There's an area in behavioral health, not so much seen uh, by medical providers uh, uh, called polyvagal, uh, where a balance between the sympathetic and uh, parasympathetic nervous system is out of whack. And you can see that same kind of pattern in individuals that are, uh, some individuals with benzodiazepine uh, survivor experiences, uh, even as much as uh, the POTS syndrome, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome that uh, has been defined for many years in other, uh, other contexts. So for me, it's a syndrome, it's an injury, and it, it probably goes far beyond uh, the GABA uh receptor because the GABA receptor, as I mentioned, just covers a certain set of uh uh those symptoms and doesn't really describe where the neurophysiologic and somatic symptoms uh are going on. Now uh in terms of how that can be, well, there there are other other areas of, of, uh, that could be involved here in terms of the uh, withdrawal pharmacology, that can involve what we call uh, the adenosine receptors, that's not as important, the neurologic system that involves the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. But one thing that I landed on recent uh, over the last uh, year or so that really opened my eyes was the um, peripheral type. Benzodiazepine receptor. That actually was identified in 1977. So there's a receptor that actually sits outside of the central nervous system and it's all over the place. And previously there hadn't been a whole lot of discussion about its involvement uh, either with the benzodiazepine effects, whether that's good or bad, and the withdrawal effect. But because it's peripheral, because it's located on the energy uh, producing uh, what we call organelle in, inside the cell called the mitochondria, yeah. we think that there's going to be a lot of symptoms that are connected to this. And, and it really explains things. Now, this is, I don't think, just an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. The reason I don't think it's an academic exercise is that benzodiazepine survivors uh, very much, very often are aware of going in, seeing their medical provider, and describing these symptoms, and watching the eyes roll, and uh, recognizing that, oh my gosh, we got, we got a live one here, you know, and uh, so there's a trend line in psychiatry, of course, uh, called psychosomatic medicine, and the diagnosis has shifted over time, and now it's called somatic symptom disorder, which means part of it is there are psychological substrates And this is a physical manifestation of it. And, of course, uh, for a variety of providers, that means they're assuming that you're crazy. Uh, But uh, it it possibly is a real uh, entity that psychological processes drive physical symptoms in major and important ways. But the assumption is that it's not quite real, Mm -hmm. that the diagnosis is not related to benzodiazepines. And so it really is important to draw a connection neurophysiologically uh, that with the symptoms that are discussed and the mechanisms that we can identify in studies uh, that are neurophysiologic. And so with the, uh, uh, the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, we have contracted with a group called NEMA and uh, the Arizona uh, University of Arizona doing uh, animal studies, Mm -hmm. looking at the peripheral receptors. Because I think it's really, really important, if we're going to have validation for those prescribers out there that are doubting the validity of what benzodiazepine survivors express, this will provide a certain measure of validation that this is real. And we need to address it uh, seriously and not cast these individuals off.
0: And Dr. Wright, is, is it possible, I mean, maybe not now, but maybe in the future, will there come a time where it's possible to see from animal studies any change to the receptors of using a, a benzodiazepine type drug? So, you know, and perhaps any explanation of whether any changes made to the receptors are permanent or, or temporary, you know, is it possible to do that now or will it be possible to do it in future?
1: I think we're actually seeing some of that uh, ha- happening right now, and and it's in that you know you, you have to really love chemistry and biochemistry to kind of geek out on this kind of information. I just read a a really brilliant article by Stephen Lacourt, uh, who's uh, associated with the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition (BIC), and he proposes a hypothesis that this has to do with. Oxidative stress, and so we hear about uh, oxidative stress as being a cause of heart attacks, and uh, you know, diet is really important in terms of minimizing that and all of that. But he has a proposal that suggests that a chemical called nitric oxide, uh, that can transition into peroxynitrite uh, by combining with superoxide, causes injury. Uh, to the cells that are involved and that this that this is a self-perpetuating cycle. and And so there's some theoretical uh, constructs within that as to how we might potentially choose some treatment paradigms. Uh, but yes, I, I think we're we're close to that. Those of you uh, who are interested, it's a it's a beautiful article in that regard. Of course, it's an unproven hypothesis, but he lays it out, in such a way that it really looks like there's a good possibility that this there is something uh, to that but again uh, it just to have that validation is going to make all the difference in the world for prescribers like me to transition their perspective from i got a crazy one sitting in front of me to this is real and i better address it in a real way if somebody is going to get better
0: yeah absolutely thank you that was really helpful and and so then I a bit more on the on the topic of benzodiazepine injury syndrome, I just wondered can you offer any advice to benzodiazepine patients who might be experiencing these persistent symptoms for many months or sometimes years? In particular, maybe how they can best communicate those issues to their medical provider or or, or to their clinician to to kind of gain recognition and support. So I just wondered if, you know, there was any way that We could perhaps help people to communicate these issues to their care provider. Well,
1: there are a variety of things that I I can think of. And and of course, the first is what I was talking about before uh, to not walk in uh, and say you're stupid and you you want to be engaged with this particular individual. But I I think it's really important that you have a relationship with somebody more so than knowing a little bit about benzodiazepines, with somebody who will listen. And so I would interview you know variety of medical providers and see if you have that and you know your medical problem better than anybody else and you can kind of throw out uh, some information and kind of test the waters you know in terms of a do they listen and b do they have uh, any knowledge in this particular domain that's a lot of heavy lifting don't do it alone though Uh, go with a peer support uh, because remember individuals that are survivors already know this uh it can be a very fragile and emotionally difficult circumstance to be speaking on your own behalf with somebody who is not willing to uh, to take that in. And you may well need that peer support uh, to, uh, to, to help out in that regard and validate that what you're saying is true and real. So uh, there's that. There are some medications that are considered in relation to uh, assisting individuals with uh, symptoms. Uh, be very careful. These are neuroactive agents as well. And we don't know, for example, in, in that 10, 15, 30 years from now, we're going to say the same thing about substances that people people are now using, like cannabis. Uh, my concern about cannabis is, is that uh, maybe we can get some short-term gains but long-term losses, and we don't know the answer to that. I mean, just like benzos, short-term gains, long-term losses uh, really are, you know, we want durability of benefit over time. The other has to do with the various modalities that individuals can be involved in, and by that I mean physical modalities and psychological modalities. Uh, Physical modalities, I think exercise is truly important, Uh, There may be some individuals uh, uh, for whom exercise is not a possibility. Uh, But for those that can, you want to start very, very small. And just like with fibromyalgia, incidentally, another disease that was discounted for many, many years, turns out to be real. Uh, You you want to do very, very little, you know, even just a five-minute walk. And I had individuals with fibromyalgia who say, you know, that's a ridiculous amount. Uh, I say, well, do it anyway, maybe four minutes. And you do that for about six weeks before making any adjustments upward and very, very small incremental adjustments upward uh, because you want ultimate success, not fast uh, moving changes that could precipitate loss of any potential gain. So, exercise is important. Diet is important, but we don't know how. Uh, it probably has to do uh, with a good, uh, balanced diet, and low sugar. Uh, high complex carbohydrate uh, vegetables and that sort of thing but we don't know exactly how that's uh, going to play out but for the meantime uh, i would recommend uh, you know a balanced diet in that regard there's a variety of other uh, diets that are out there that uh, you know been tried gluten-free keto diets that sort of thing Uh, and i you know i wonder if there may be some benefits there but uh, to my knowledge None of that's been uh, studied. And then you look at the kind of range of symptoms um, uh, that you have. If you have cognitive problems, you you know, uh, know, modalities in terms of uh, uh, dealing with your cognitive problems is going to be uh, going to be important. If you have POTS syndrome, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, there are ways to, uh, to manage that. But one of the most important ways uh, that I think uh, individuals should be involved is to look at their foundational general health, Uh, not even necessarily addressing it in relation to benzodiazepines, but we may find answers in functional medicine uh, where uh, individuals that attend to their hormonal status uh, and, you know, uh, toxic loads and other ways may do better over time. These are reasonable approaches that have not been proven. It's going to take a while to sort that out. Uh, but why wait when it's available? And uh, individuals can benefit in other ways, not necessarily uh, the benzodiazepine uh, related uh, symptom complex, but I would I would recommend finding a functional medicine uh, medical provider to assist in that particular uh, process as well.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. And, and, you know, I I kind of feel myself that since the effects of these drugs are kind of system-wide, then treating the whole system in a functional basis is probably a a, a sensible thing to do, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it is. And, you know, uh, eventually we're going to get answers to all of this, but for general health is a good idea. Why not uh, take a look at it in relation to benzodiazepine injury-related circumstances as well? And, and then uh, kind
0: of uh, as we come towards the close, I guess the bigger question then is, is, is in your opinion, what should medicine be doing to address some of these issues of perhaps over or, or misprescribing risk of dependence and withdrawal, the, the lack of awareness and education of doctors about benzodiazepine injury syndrome and, and, and related issues? Do you think there are viable solutions to that problem?
1: I do, but it's not real clear what's going to be the most effective avenue out there. So I divide this into a clinical response and a kind of more public health or uh, generalized response. And the clinical response is to to go to and educate the medical providers active uh, in prescribing and indicate to them, first, listen to your patients. Second, uh, limit initiation of benzodiazepines. And use the benzodiazepines as a bridge. Uh, With regards to uh, the indications, uh, there is a strong indication for alcohol withdrawal, uh, status epilepticus, where seizures go on for a very long period of time. And uh, to make me sleepy and unaware of a medical procedure that is not done under general anesthesia. And that's all safe, all short lived and so forth. For insomnia, insomnia and uh, anxiety and muscle relaxation, consider benzodiazepines as a bridge uh, till other things start to work. The one modality that I didn't mention in the withdrawal process that I should have mentioned is cognitive behavioral therapy for individuals that are having withdrawal symptoms. But the same applies to anxiety and insomnia. Cognitive behavioral therapy, very important for those uh, medical conditions as well. And they work. Uh, They work as well as benzos. The problem is you got to find somebody. That takes time. And you got to start the process. And it takes time for it to work. So benzodiazepines for individuals that have severely functionally impairing uh, symptoms where I can't get out, can't do stuff because I'm so overwhelmed, okay, bridge while you're getting other things involved. Uh, Other medications can get started as well. Uh, Pregabalin, SSRIs, SNRIs, and I know uh, a lot of people have concerns about that. I didn't want to get into all of that at this particular time, but they do have value in uh, carefully indicated uh, situations. Hmm. So then, for the individuals that are already on benzodiazepines, obviously, if you have an obvious side effect uh, or the benefit is going away, you stop it. But I do think uh, for individuals that are on benzodiazepines two to four weeks, offer tapering. And for individuals that say, no, I'm not going to do that, don't make them feel bad. Just continue to monitor them. And how do we monitor them? Uh, well, you know, obviously the symptoms. Uh, obviously, too, is their ability to think, uh, you know, cognition. How's their memory? And there are memory tools that you can kind of sort out uh, how well they're doing in that regard. But also, is their respirations uh, depressed? And you can do oxygenation studies to find out if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Just reflect that to uh, back to the patient uh, in terms of you know how's that going for you uh, you know, and here's the data, and I'm more concerned about it. your memory is not as quite as good as it was a year ago, kind of a thing. Then for individuals that are on benzodiazepines uh, and agree to a taper plan first, make sure the support structures are in place, and then uh, consider transitioning to a long acting benzodiazepine like diazepam to allow for uh, uh, an easier reduction uh, overall. Uh, we do recognize that uh, interdose uh, withdrawal can occur for some individuals in the shorter acting uh, agents. Diazepam, particularly useful for not everybody because you can have problems with diazepam as well. And then uh, to make sure that uh, along the way individuals have the support and think of the taper as a 12 to 18 month probably more on the 18 month uh, kind of uh, strategy and and make a small reduction. Uh, That reduction uh, occurs maybe one milligram of diazepam when you're taking 40 milligrams or the equivalent of it and see how it goes. And if it goes really, really well, maybe you can go with two milligrams next time. But uh, patients don't want to think you're going to be throwing them under the bus with this 10% a week or month or 25% a month. That noise uh, really needs to go away. But you can accelerate it later if you're doing okay, and then make, uh, make your tapers uh, such that uh, over a period of time, you can continue to do that. Uh, you'll need to slow it down as you're getting closer to the end, stretch out the time interval for making those changes. Uh, maybe not every month, but every two months, six weeks, something like that, until you you. You can get the, uh, get the job done. And then for the residual symptoms, be there uh, to support as well. Now, for the more public uh, generalized approach, uh, what we think at the Alliance for Benzodiazepine best practices is that the best opportunity is going to be to go to the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration here in the United States, or the FDA, and see if we can seek, uh, seek out some changes. We would like to see them up scheduled, uh, you know, from uh, schedule four, where they are right now, uh, to a higher level, of schedule three or two. That puts prescribers on uh, notice that this is a bigger deal than they, than they had assumed to be the case. And I think that's valid. Second is black box, particularly in relation to uh, warnings about withdrawal. Third is what's called the medication guide, which exists in the prescribing information. That's essentially the informed consent. And we really got to get the informed consent uh, out there in, in an agreed upon format uh, that we publicize widely and support its use uh, for individuals. I, I don't think it ought to be legislated, but that's another story. And then what's called REMPs, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategies. So in 2007, in the United States, there was federal legislation telling the FDA that they could proceed forward with extra educational efforts or other means for medications that are higher risk. And this we see with the opioids. We want to see this with benzodiazepines. And, And the value of that there really is uh, that the pharmaceutical industry pays the bill, uh, for the extra education. Uh, we don't have enough money, uh, the Alliance or other organizations to, to really, you know, have this strong multiplier effect to change prescribing practices, uh, in a big way, but that's an opportunity that really can do that. So then aside from that, there's a way to look at this in terms of, um, who do we focus on for uh, improving prescribing practices? So there's there's a focus on the prescriber, there's a focus on patients, there's a focus on the public, there's a focus on the pharmaceutical industry, there's a focus on insurance. Uh, there are a variety of different uh, focus points where we can uh, we can address this, and so we we're trying to sort out you know in the literature in general. Where things are going to work best, and that's a work in progress.
0: Dr. Ryan, that was fantastic. Thank you. I just wondered whether there was anything else that you felt important to add or, or to share. We,
1: we kind of live in a society that you know, that says, you know, the it, it's the Nietzsche thing, you know, where whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. That's not true all the time. Uh, it was uh, Frederick Nietzsche that said that, uh, but it's not true that you know if benzodiazepine withdrawal doesn't kill me. I will be a stronger individual over a longer period of time because it does kill uh, and it does harm uh, and it, it, it destroys in significant ways. So it's really important to recognize that we need to be there for our patients in relation to that uh, that particular harm. Now, that being said. Uh, I can say that uh, I've run into individuals who have been out there and have ha- had ultimately a resolution of their symptoms after a number of years. There really is that kind of hope. And, and the hope is, is real and is not Pollyannish, uh, is not made up. Desmond Tutu was asked the question, of I mean, there were two towns in South Africa uh One seemed to do really well. the other uh, and it had uh individuals uh that became doctors and lawyers and stuff like that. The other town did not and he was asked what's the difference you know the same kind of area and so forth and he said, "Well, the town that did very well, there was a path out there was hope uh and we need to see hope, not unrealistic kind of hope, but the kind of hope uh that individuals uh, can truly have, because that potential is out there. Rumi, great poet, uh, said, uh, do not turn your head away from the bandaged area. That is where the light comes in. And that's not to excuse or say that suffering is going to be this wonderful thing for all individuals that are involved, but there is a an evolution where uh, injury of this sort uh, starts as uh, as an enemy and ultimately can become a companion in a variety of ways. Uh, and people have described to me, I've, I've not had the experience of benzodiazepine injury, so I can't speak to that myself, but I, people have described to me how, in, in a personal way, they have had uh, some true enlightenment or benefit or whatever you want to call it, not that they would Recommend anybody do this again, but there is a path forward, a path forward uh, both with regards to the hope of resolution as well as uh, uh, understanding about what it's like to be human uh, and relate to other individuals and help each other along the way that I think we can all learn from and benefit from over time.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. It's so important to hold on to that hope and and to to use it as a foundation upon which to build. And uh, Dr. Wright, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for your work and to know that there are physicians out there like you that are willing to take these issues seriously and to educate other medical professionals too. So uh, I'm so grateful for your time and to get the chance to chat today. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And so let's let's get out there and help a lot of others along the way too. Uh, So prescribers don't necessarily have to get stuck into harming many, many more people.
0: So I just want to thank Dr. Wright for that interview and to say that you can find information on the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices by visiting the website benzoreform.org. So thank you for listening today and thank you to our guests Janelle, Dr. Christy Huff and Dr. Stephen Wright. And also thank you to all of the WBAD volunteers who work so hard on this important awareness day and often manage to do that despite their own suffering and symptoms. And of course, a huge shout out to any of you listening who have experienced difficulties from a prescribed benzodiazepine. And finally, just as a reminder, to follow along with events today, head over to World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day's Facebook page at facebook.com worldbenzoday or find them on Twitter at worldbenzoday. So, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.